welcome to the 23rd episode of the official SPGAN podcast, hosted by Dr. Alex Nicely. And good evening, good morning, good afternoon, wherever and whenever you are. This is Alex here. We are going to surprise you. And now I'm going to take away from the surprise by telling you how we're going to surprise you. Up until now, the theme of these podcasts has been more or less, Alex has a good time by teasing the person who's being interviewed, tries to elicit a little bit of information about the topic that the person being interviewed has chosen, and who knows, at the end of a quarter of an hour, you leave having had a good time on the way to work or wherever, but uh, maybe that's not, maybe that's not serious enough. Who knows? So today, today, it's going to be Journal Club, JPGN Journal Club. The Education Committee is headed by Andres Yanke. Some of you have heard him on this podcast before. And Andres has chosen two articles from the most recent number of Journal of Pediatric Gastroenterology and Nutrition that he thinks are particularly worth discussing, particularly worth giving some attention to. I couldn't agree more. But with that, take it away, Andy. Well, thanks, Alex, for the nice introduction. Um, yeah, we would like to get some spice into the Aspgan podcast by um, discussing um, the most recent um, papers in JPGN. And um, this time I picked two papers. One is a retrospective study on EOE and oral immune therapy. And the other one is um, a review on hypnotherapy and functional intestinal disorders. I'm going to stop you here for just a moment by saying oral immunotherapy was a concept new to me when I picked up this paper. It sounds as if what it's all about is if a patient has an identified allergy, say to cow's milk, say to eggs, say to peanuts, then you keep feeding the kid that particular allergen, starting small, working up, until you finally worn down some aspect of the body's immune system, and it gives up and says, oh, all right, if you're going to feed me that, I suppose I might as well, I might as well give in. Have I got that right? Yeah, well, I, I couldn't give a better summary about this concept, in fact. So yeah, that's that's um, what what happened with this oral immunotherapy. And um, well, let's start with this study. So so it's a retrospective design. It's a single center. It's from Madrid in Spain, and um, they collected all patients between 2005 and 2020 who underwent oral immunotherapy. So they collected a little bit more than 600 patients, and they asked the, the questions: How many of these patients? eventually develop um, EOE. Well, wait a minute, here's another question. How many of these kids actually had EOE before they were begun on the therapy? How did, you, how did they assess that in 600 kids? Well, actually, they didn't. So, because it's not part of the regular assessment, unfortunately. Uh -huh. So, in many countries, at least in Europe, um, the oral immune therapy is done by the pulmonologists. Oh, 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 and not oh. by the gastroenterologist. So, so there we have some kind of, um, yeah, so, so some kind of linkage problem. So, so, um, cooperation problem. So, focus problem, I would say. 
Well, so 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 they did not collect data on that, and also in two thousand and five, um, the the concept of eosinophilic esophagitis was not very well defined. So uh-huh. so it's more during the last five to ten years that um, the problem came to to um, our knowledge. So as I said, it's a retrospective design, which of course um, is um, always a weakness, but I think there's one point where you have to start to collect data. And um, starting with the retrospective data is always the easiest. And what's interesting here is that about 3% of um, all patients in this cohort eventually developed um, EOE. So this is a prevalence which is a little bit more than 100 times higher than in the general population. I see, I see. Okay. Even though one might argue that they had no really comparison of prevalence um, during the time. I, gotta, I have to step in here again. And that is to say, um, so the criteria in this study for diagnosing EOE are biopsy dependent. Absolutely. Which means that in order to get a... I'm really hard put to believe that all 600 plus kids underwent biopsy assessment sometime during the course of their uh, oral immunotherapy or thereafter. Yeah. So that we don't have a proper denominator at the start or at the end. Well, point taken, that's absolutely right. So, so. In fact, I mean, all, all that that could mean is that we're underestimating yes, the instance, yes, incidence yeah, of yeah, eosinophilic esophagitis yeah, yeah. because there could be kids who've got it and who are stoic or in whom it some, for some reason doesn't trouble them enough yeah. to complain. Yeah, I agree. This is so very good point. So, so this study just demonstrates the absolutely lower limit of prevalence of um, EOE in oral immunotherapy. Which is 100 times higher than in the general population. Yeah. Well, that's impressive. I agree. So, and I think it's it's important to, to um, speak with the parents about this problem prior um, the initiation of the therapy. So, because it's, it's a relevant complication. Right, a relevant complication. Now, something that comes to mind is you don't have a lot of kids there. You have, well, uh, how many was it in all? Seventeen. Yes, yeah, seventeen. Seventeen out of two hundred, out of six hundred. Was it possible in any way to say, "Hey, these kids put up flags for being at increased risk"? When you looked back at their medical records and said, "What's different? What's the same?" Well, actually, not really. But they, the the authors, um, argue that maybe twenty five, thirty percent of the patients who eventually developed an EOE might have had an EOE even before starting the oral immune therapy. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So, well, this is the problem with the retrospective studies. So it's always a little bit vague, and there is always a lot room for speculation. But still. I think 3% is something we we have to keep in our mind. In particular, um, because in this study, the patients um, 
who eventually developed an EOE, they're a little bit more complicated to treat than the general EOE patient. So Why is that? Well, what's, what's a little bit surprising to me is that avoiding the, the allergen. So, for example, if you, if you have a cow milk allergy and develop mm -hmm. an EOE, usually leads to complete res resolution of the symptoms. So this was not the case in this study. So only in 25% of the cases, this um, restriction diet worked in, in patients with the, with the cosmic allergy. And in the group with the egg allergy, it didn't work at all. Oh, so you have, then you have to bring out a different set of guns, bigger guns, and who knows what that's well yeah you, next yeah 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 very important point because many patients need to swallow corticosteroids oh, for yeah. quite some time okay. Okay. so and um this is also always a little bit um associated with um, complications for example um some patients develop fungal infection of the in in the mouth for example or yeah, yeah. um there was quite some some amount of the steroids is absorbed in the body and then you get get some some systemic um, complications so it's it's not a major problem but for growing organism um, systemic steroids is always not a good an idea issue. Yes. not a good idea hey when did this eosinophilus well <laughs> sorry first day with my new with my new lips um when did the eosinophilic esophagitis crop up was it during the course of the immunotherapy how long do you have to be on the lookout for this complication after the kid is tolerating the eggs yeah so so in most um, of the patients it, it was during the maintenance therapy so it started about a little bit more than two years um, after the initiation of the therapy so you need to be aware of the problem for quite some time. Wow. That is a fascinating theme and one that's going to keep a lot of people busy in the investigation and in the reporting. But we don't have any more time to devote to it during this podcast. We've got two articles to get through and we're halfway through the time allotted. So let's move to hypnotherapy. Um, what in the world? Hypnotherapy. Um, I wasn't expecting that. Well, I picked this paper because it's a very important topic which is um, undervalued um, in our scientific community, I believe, uh -huh. because it's very time-consuming, it's um, difficult to implement, and it's all, all, also complicated to measure. So the success, of course. I mean, it's it's much easier to prescribe some drugs and say to the patient, "Well, take it, and you will feel better," and then you can can measure it afterwards. Then telling the patient, "So um, you need to start some kind of self-influencing daydreaming process to improve your own well-being." So, so what we've got here is an allopath-based medical system for the most part, in which we have uh, something outside the body is doing the damage, something that can be corrected by turning the dials, moving the levers, altering the function of the organism. And that's how medicine, allopathic medicine works. If it's a tumor, you cut it out. If it's a problem with a uh, chemical imbalance, you alter the chemicals that are going in. 
Hypnotherapy now is a very different kettle of fish. But in an allopathic-based medicine system, you don't get to think about hypnotherapy as a modality until you've labeled a dysfunction, until you've labeled a patient's distress as idiopathic. You have to put them through all of the jumps across all of the hurdles and the water hazards involved in getting to the end of the race course. And only then can you say, hey, this is now functional disease, at which point hypnotherapy becomes, and I'm, I'm coming at this from somebody, from the standpoint of somebody who was trained in the USA, the Krankenkassen, who is going to reimburse the patient's parents for the money that they spend on hypnotherapy counseling? Big problem. Actually, at least in Germany, no one. So I don't know um, how it works in, in other European countries, but it's a difficult concept. But one has to acknowledge that at least 10, maybe 20% of all children have some kind of functional intestinal disorders. Okay. So starting with the functional abdominal pain, functional nausea, and all kind of intestinal um, symptoms. And um, I mean, if you think about hypnotherapy as a concept in functional disorders yeah. and going back to our ancestors, for example, in, 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 um, in um, Germany, we have a lot of sayings about connection between the brain and, and, and the gut. So if you're in love, for example, in Germany, you say you have butterflies in your stomach. So, but also in English, so, so uh, a lot of e English colleagues, they always talk about, I have a gut feeling about that. So Isn't that the truth? Okay. I think mm -hmm. there, is, there is some rationality um, that hypnotherapy really works. And this review um, summarizes the accumulated evidence over the last 30 years. So there are not an overwhelming number of studies. But in most cases, they could show an effect in very different kind of disorders. So improving functional abdominal pain, for example, this, this was uh, the main topic where um, hypnotherapy started, but then going to functional nausea, but also to, to children who um, experience severe pain during needle placement, for example, hypnotherapy is able to reduce the um, subjective feeling of the pain. So I think it's a very nice review summarizing the current evidence. And it's, from my point of view, an underestimated field of possible therapeutic intervention. And it gives the reader a nice overview where we stand at the moment. So I suggest everyone to read it. Tell us now, to what extent you're able to deploy this therapeutic measure in your own hospital, in your own clinics? What are your, just since a lot of this is anecdotal anyway, tell us some anecdotes. Some anecdotes about? Your success or the patients who were refractory to it or things that, think <clears throat> in the abstract, great idea, but now give us a couple of stories about the kids whom you've helped. Well, I, I, well, 
Um, I have quite quite an interesting recent case about a 15-year-old who developed really severe nausea, functional mm-hmm. nausea. We mm-hmm. put him through all the testing, endoscopy, um, lab testing, etc. And then we started to, to treat him with anti-emetics. So we started with the deminhedrinate. We went to... Um, corticosteroids, we even um, tried a prepitant, uh, quite new um, anti-emetic drug. We used combinations, but in the end, nothing really improved the situation. Um, fortunately, we um, found a psychologist who wanted to, or who agreed to, to try the concept of hypnotherapy. and. The patient was also quite fluent in English, so we provided him with a, an audio guide on hypnotherapy in English. Uh-huh. And he started that about six weeks ago, and um, the symptoms are not gone, but um, he's able to go to school again, and he's also able to meet friends, and he, he's starting to recover his life. And I think it's worth trying it. And maybe we we should have tried it a little bit earlier. It could have saved three to four months unsuccessful treatment with a different kind of um, medications. I'm going to ask, this is a very uninformed question, and I apologize if it is something that I should have known long ago. But what are the objective criteria by which one diagnoses what used to be called abdominal epilepsy? Well, it's well, it's not abdominal epilepsy. Okay. So, so, so if you have abdominal epilepsy, this is quite straightforward because you can see it in an EEG. EEG. So it's just functional nausea. So the patient just tells me that he feels nauseated all the time. So without any reason. So we we did an MRI, we did a lumbar puncture, we did did tons of lab testing. And I wasn't saying you'd missed the diagnosis. No, 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 no. I just wanted to say, so maybe we, we missed the diagnosis. Maybe, I mean, if you say functional, it just means we do not know. Idiopathic. Yeah. yeah. So, so um, maybe we, we missed something in this patient. But this does not help the patient. I mean, we, we, they, they, I think, I, be, I believe there is some point where you need to say, okay, we, we did a lot of testing and we couldn't define the problem, but we still need to do something because gotcha. otherwise you, you, you come into some kind of victim role. And this mm-hmm, mm-hmm. eventually leads to depression and farther, farther worsens the problem. I got you. What you have then is, whether it's placebo effect, whether it's hypnotherapy or something else, we don't need to know a mechanism to know that something works. People knew that apples fell long before gravity was defined. I and agree. They worked, and they worked from that principle. We see this and we can use this. One of the things, one of the phrases in that article that struck me as particularly salient is the idea of hypnotherapy as daydreaming with a purpose, daydreaming toward a goal. And, you know, it's not something that's being measured in terms of cytokines or lymphocyte subsets. 
maybe hypnotherapy is itself in the in the medical field is also dreaming toward a goal but as long as we get that to that goal who the heck cares i agree well that's about it i can see over your shoulder the image of selma our producer and of manny our tech, our technical assistant and engineer saying it's over for today now, we're not going to ask you for a song that particularly reflects your interests. This is all business. This is Journal Club. And with that, thank you for allowing yourself to come under fire in the first edition of Espagan Journal Club. Thanks, Alex. Um, it was a real pleasure to discuss this article with you and to explore this um, new Espagan um, podcast format, which will continue um, in a regular way every month and for everyone who's um, hooked by this podcast can read up the articles in the current issue of the jbgn journal and thank you this was fun for me a new experience and one that i look forward to repeating with other folks on other themes <laughs>